Welcome into Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman. It has been a minute, but happy to be back and in a Zoom with someone who I really, frankly, admire and someone who I uh, had the chance to talk to a lot. Unfortunately, we never got the chance to finally pull the trigger and work together when I was with the Washington Spirit uh, for a litany of reasons. But I so admire the work that he does and the stories that he tells is Matthew Barrett. Uh, the site that he runs is called Goal Click. And uh, we're going to learn about Matthew and we're going to learn about Goal Click. And hopefully uh, this leads to some people clicking over and, and reading some amazing, inspiring stories that are on the website. So Matthew, welcome to Chasing Interesting. What an introduction. I'm genuinely blushing. I don't think I've ever been introduced in that way before. So thank you, Craig. And it's uh, very nice to be speaking to you. Um, so I would love to start with you uh, before we get to the site, uh, because th you are the founder of the site, right? This is your project that you started? That is correct. I, I have one other co-founder, but um, ever since the very early stages, it's predominantly been myself working on it. And so I think in order to understand the perspective of a site like this, which actually to, to give a little bit more background on GoalClick and like kind of work in reverse, this is a site where Matthew and his team have soccer or well, football. I, I feel like I'm, I'm now like a soccer person. Uh, I worked in, I worked in football. Uh, I worked in American football before that. I'm talking to an Englishman. We're just going to use football uh, for the rest of the podcast, which should make you, you feel very happy. Whatever you want. Uh, so you can use whatever you want. You have football players from all over the world uh, take a camera and capture what they capture. And, and if this could be in a village in Pakistan, it could be at a World Cup. And then you talk with them and they tell their stories and they tell the stories of the photographs. And it, so it, in a way, it is your perspective because you're the one who put it together. But it's also it's gathering of perspectives from all over the globe as, as your tagline on your site says you're connecting the world uh, through football or connecting the globe through football. And so the idea to, to even do this in the first place, like when did you fall in love with storytelling? When did you fall in love with football? Well, first of all, thanks for you know, describing GoalClick so well and doing my job for me. Um, it's always, <laughs> always nice to nice to have someone who uh, who knows what's what's going on and, and what we're talking about. Um, I think the origin story for me is probably in the fact that I've often had two main loves in my life, particularly growing up um, and you know studying at university. I was a massive sports fan, obviously, as you would expect. Um, but also, I've always been very interested in history, politics, and stories of people throughout history. So they were two very independent things for me growing up. But it was only really when I was at university that it was brought to my attention that I could fuse both of those things together. So I ended up studying a lot of the role of sport in politics and history um, throughout the 20th century. Um, sport and its use by communist and fascist regimes, sport in the 1930s and 40s, sport in the British Army in the Second World War. I kind of became that sport and war guy. Um, and that then really extended through to me just taking a massive interest in wherever there was either conflict or you know, political stories or just interesting global events. I'm the person that thinks, well, I wonder what's going on in sport. And I wonder what sport can tell us um, about that country or that society at that point in time so that's my origin story um ultimately football is then a big portion of that pie you know wherever you go football is everywhere and it just naturally dominates sport so whilst i started off coming from definitely a sporting perspective you know, football quickly became um 
you know, the focus of that. So yeah, that's my slightly odd origin story. Yeah. Uh, you might've seen me, uh, obviously the listener won't, but you might've seen me like looking over here. Oh, there it is. Uh, I'm, but my books are off to my left and I'm curious. So as you started talking there, uh, there's a book that I'm now holding up in the zoom called how soccer explains the world. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, but a buddy of mine had me read it as I started working for the spirit. And he's like, you need to read this book. You need to understand soccer on a global scale. You need to understand the geopolitical nature of football. And, and I'm just curious, like as a kid growing up in England, I don't know who your, your, your team was, uh, which, I'm sure you have an answer to that because every Englishman does. Uh, but but how aware were you growing up being just a sports fan of the political implications, specifically in football the world over, from the oligarchs being involved in teams to the religious feuds that were involved uh, in certain rivalries and, and all of that type of uh, geopolitical nature of football? So I'm a Tottenham fan with a passing interest in Leighton Orient, to answer your first question. Okay, there we go. Um, and God, that's a really good question. And I'm definitely aware that I didn't understand the true scale of it. Uh, I think that I don't think we see football in quite the same way in the UK as the rest of the world see it. Um, because for us, football is just, you know, I guess normal with a home of football and, you know, we don't really understand the historical movements and the reason why football is everywhere around the world and who brought it there. Whereas I know in a lot of other countries, the origins of football are probably much better understood as in how football came to be and why those teams got set up in the way they are. So I don't feel like we are taught enough about the history of football. And I think we have quite an introspective view of football. I think that's probably been the way it's always been. And we're always surprised when other nations become good at it and better than us at it. I think that's a, a common theme throughout British sporting history. So I don't think I was particularly aware um, of the historical trends and, um, you know, the geopolitical um, aspects of football. But I think that there are some great authors who have really tackled this. You know, people I admire like David Goldblatt and James Montague and, um, Jonathan Wilson have all you know created some amazing books that have really brought home um, you know football's role in other countries and, and how it explains the world as you, as you just said I think where I have found that we can do things slightly differently is starting to put the people on the receiving end of those geopolitical changes in kind of control of the story a bit more I think there's been quite a lot of good scholarship around, you know, explaining why football has got to certain places and the broader macro trends. But I actually don't think we often put ordinary people within that story too much. Um, and obviously we'll come on to that. We're talking about goal click soon. But yeah, the short answer is not really growing up. And it was only when I um, kind of moved into this world during my university studies, then afterwards when I was working in the sports industry that I started to understand quite how um, how long the tentacles of football and maybe the British role in exporting it is. Have you seen that? Like, uh, my so a good friend of mine is Clinton Yates, uh, who works for ESPN and uh, the Undefeated, and he wrote what I thought was just this beautiful column. Uh, around the Euros, where he's talking about a, a, an offshoot of what you just talked about, and I would love your perspective on it. That so often the people that were 
basically the non-white people who were playing for the European countries uh, to just simplify it were had the, the tentacles or the connecting to back or back to the country they were playing for because of colonization, right? Like this person who uh, whose parents is from this African nation has a tie to France or England or Germany or whatever because of European colonization. And what we've seen in this European championships is a lot of the stars of the tournament are people who either themselves or their parents were refugees and were accepted by the European countries. And it didn't have to be a conquering. It could be an accepting incoming. And I'm just curious as someone who traces these kinds of things, like how you've processed watching these euros and and the different faces quite literally that we've seen star uh, in in these European championships. And over the last couple of years uh, in, in the leagues all over Europe. Well, one thing to add on to that is it's only going in one direction. And I think that, um, you know, more and more you're going to see um, a lot of people deciding what countries they're going to pay play for, not just maybe having two options, but maybe three or four or five options, mm-hmm. um, as certain people have had in the past, because we are truly now um, in the age of where globalization um, has meant that this is these are debates that are now going to happen from from here on. Um, and it's only going to get um, more interesting to see who people are going to end up playing for. Um, I think there's also with the, on the refugee side, you know, it's an area that we've worked a lot in. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily um, split that away from the impact of colonization. Um, you know, a lot of the conflicts Absolutely. that are um, happening today can be traced back to that time. So, Whilst it might not necessarily be so overt and direct, um, the legacy of colonialism uh, creates a lot of the conflicts that lead to refugee issues and displacement today. Um, I think that um, it's really interesting in the UK seeing the almost schizophrenic view of our national team. On the one hand, they are, you know, celebrated as the pride of England. But on the other hand, there's obviously been a lot of controversy um, with uh, them continuing to take the knee um, and that not being popular with certain sections of British society. And on the one hand, they boo. And then the next minute they're cheering. And I think that actually is a really good example of a lot of the um, complex issues that football fans are getting their heads around (laughs) Um, in that there isn't one clear, clean narrative and one easy way of defining who plays for a national team and how they view them being part of that country. Um, There are so many different ways to feel English or to feel French or to feel German, and that doesn't fit neatly into existing ideas that have been dominant for the last century or so. So I think even the presence of um, players of other nationalities, of other backgrounds rather, in those national teams is really forcing conversations and forcing people to try and make sense of their views. Uh, and you can see that a lot of people are struggling with that. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of my take on things. I think it's really interesting that this tournament feels like all of those pieces are coming together, social justice, nationality, like have really collided um, in this tournament even more so than previously. And it's going to get even more so in the future. 
I think sometimes here in America, we think of those types of contradictions as, as uniquely American and it's refreshing. And I, I don't know if it's refreshing. Maybe it's not refreshing to hear that, that it's not that, um, some of the, uh, contradictions, some of the problems that we experience here where there's a large segment of the population that is okay with an athlete existing as an athlete, as long as they are in their television screen and performing the job of athlete. But the minute that they want to get outside that box, it becomes uncomfortable. And it's like, no, 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 we're okay with you. We're okay with equality. As long as uh, the definition of equality is you perform for me and make me happy and don't uh, try to fight for your own existence. Otherwise your own rights, uh, the rights of people who look like you, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that seems to be a lot of what is happening over there as well definitely um and yeah it's been i think it's it's been quite inspirational to see um you know gareth southgate and the, and the players of the england football team really you know making a stand for what they believe in and um doing it together um, yeah. and they've been very clear and very communicative with why they're doing it and sometimes that message hasn't got through but um it's um it is the first time that i think we've seen an england team so united and at ease with each other um and it feels like a very strong strong unit and you need that kind of <laughs> that kind of bond between people to sometimes make statements and sometimes you know change people's minds because if there wasn't unity, it would show. Yeah, absolutely. And not to mention, it clearly does not hurt them on the field as they made a semifinal again in their second straight major tournament. Uh, back to you and your your <laughs> journey. Uh, so you said after university, you went into the sports industry. What did you do before GoalClick? So I was working predominantly in the sports sponsorship, sports marketing world. Um, I worked for three different agencies, um, all within the same master group called WPP. Um, but yeah, worked for agencies called Hill and Knowlton, uh, ESP and Two Circles. I started off more on the communication side, um, then did some sponsorship sales, kind of attempting to broker deals, um, and then a bit of consultancy as well. So it was always related to sports sponsorship, um, but different kind of aspects of the sports world from a skill perspective. And then how did you get the idea for Goal Click and, and what ultimately made you pull the trigger to start it? So I actually did it concurrently. So uh, Goal Click was an idea that myself and my co-founder, Ed, had in 2013. Uh, we started it as a crazy idea. Uh, let's find lots of people all around the world and ask them to tell their story about their country, their lives through the lens of football, to be honest that's guiding principle is still in place today mm -hmm. um albeit a, a vastly different scale but yeah we we had very few expectations we started off with one person in sierra leone um the manager of the national amputee football association abraham bangura who was a church minister as well we sent off a camera um a disposable camera which is what we tend to use uh and then waited for three months <laughs> very very few expectations we got the first camera back and the role of film was just breathtaking uh you know really really powerful incredible photography um taken from within that team and at that moment we thought we've got something here 
Um, and that really sparked, well, a journey into many other countries. I say journey, not physically, because we don't travel to places, but trying to find new storytellers from a lot of different countries. Quickly after Sierra Leone, there was uh, Iraq and India and Peru and Australia and Rwanda and Mexico. But I did it whilst I was doing my full-time job for about four years. Um, and it grew and grew and grew. And then it got to 2018. And just before the Russian World Cup, I decided that I would go full-time on it because I could see what the business model might be. And um, yeah, it wasn't ever really a decision. It felt like it was the inevitable conclusion of a path I'd set myself on. Mm. And the decision got easier and easier every day when it wasn't even a decision. The inevitability got more and more every single day until I really felt like I had no choice. And it was the right thing to do for me, for where I was at in my career, and because I wanted to, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's nice to be able to just be like, this is what I want to do. And I already have the business model that's got me on the right track that uh, I, I can do it and not have to worry about, you know, paying my bills at the end of the day. Because often well, that does like real as much as we all want to do, do what you want to do and set out like you still we still live in the real world where, where rent is due and, and, and all those types of things. So I always say to people, don't just quit a job and do what you want to do. <laughs> Try and, you know, find out if it's going to work first. Um I started Gold Click by doing five minutes of work. That five minutes led to 10 minutes. Mm. That 10 minutes led to 10 minutes a day. And eventually it became a second job. And eventually I could see where the business model could be. Now, when I did start doing it full time, that business model wasn't in full flow, mm. but I could see where it was going. Uh, so I always say to people, if I had waited until I had the full vision of what Gold Click was going to be before I started it, I never would have started anything. There is no way you can work everything out. So I feel like a lot of people get scared because they don't have the plan fully worked out and that's why they just don't start something. But if you can just do five minutes on one, on one day, you'll find yourself snowballing towards, um, towards a good outcome. So yeah, that's, that tends to be my advice to people. Don't, don't wait for uh, having everything worked out and thinking you're meant to be a genius with a master plan. Um, sometimes you just need a slightly crazy idea and just give it a go. That's beautiful. Um, I love that. And it's so true. Um, when you started Gold Click and as you started, was your focus... Like, did you intend on just focusing on quote unquote regular people, non-professionals uh, or maybe semi-professionals, people who football meant a lot to, but it wasn't their life? Or did you always hope to get to the point where you would also have this mix of those, that original type of uh, person that you talked to, you mentioned the, uh, the person in Sierra Leone, uh, as well as the professionals where you've now worked at the Women's World Cup and, and uh, other places uh, at the top of the football world? It's a really good question because I think we can look at where we are now and assume it is always destined to be that way. Right now, we do work with everyone from the grassroots to the elite, marginalised communities, refugees, people in conflict zones, women and girls all around the world, football fans, grassroots players, the elite. But if I look back, at the start, 
there was some fundamentals definitely in place. We were working pretty much 50-50 gender-wise from the very outset. We were working with sport for development organisations. We were working with grassroots. We were working with football fans from the very outset. The elite players maybe came slightly later, but I do think that we always wanted to show different perspectives from all levels of the game. We definitely have our emotional core in the world of sport for development and sport for social good. We work with a lot of great NGOs, a lot of great charities and movements and activists who are doing pretty amazing things in various countries around the world, whether that's Spear of Soccer working um, in northern Iraq to educate children on the danger of landmines through football, or whether it's in Rwanda working with um, Eric Morangwa, um, who set up an organisation called Football for Hope, Peace and Unity to encourage reconciliation after the random genocide in 1994 you know that is a bit of an emotional heartbeat of our project which will always be very important to us but from the very outset we knew that we couldn't just be um you know one type of story because that would get boring quite quickly so it's always been very important to us to have range in terms of obviously nationality gender type of person um and accounting for you know all different types of characteristics what makes a good goal click story in other words what's the thing that that it has to check box number one to get through the door at goal click box number one to be a goal click story is the desire to tell it so everyone has a story everyone has a perspective no matter where they're from and who they are and actually sometimes we do get people who think well why do you want my story because they feel that they're just so normal and regular. But I actually believe that you know, everyone has a story and it can be made interesting if there is a desire to tell it. So, you know, there's no technical skill required. Um, you know, it's very much a creative eye and a story that they want to tell to the world. You know, we're not forcing anyone to tell their story. Um, and then, yeah, there's is a relatively low bar, I would say, to entry. Um, but what we increasingly do these days is we're, we're, we're looking for specific types of story almost thematically. So we've done a lot of work with the UNHCR around refugee um, issues. So finding refugees, asylum seekers, internally displaced persons is a real focus of our work right now. Um, so I would say it's more thematic and personal in terms of who makes a good gold click story teller rather than a set of technical expertise or a very specific type of story that we're looking for when it comes to a marginalized community um obviously there's a trust factor there because those are stories by nature that have been ignored for far too long and uh mm -hmm. to come in especially uh, as a white man and and especially depending on the the community for you specifically a white englishman there's a john oliver has a great bit about how when he goes on vacation he has to google uh the country that he's going to england and then typically just goes oh no uh knowing oh. that the second he gets off the plane with his english passport they're going to be like oh you um so when you approach a marginalized community specifically a refugee community um where england might have played a role as you mentioned in the geopolitical nature of why there's a refugee situation in a in the first place how do you approach people and, and make that connection to say hey we're gonna let you tell your story in your way because we want your story to be told and this isn't about us 
Yes, a really good point that we were hyper aware of when we very much started out GoalClick. There would be a huge difference um, if our methodology was to go into a country and tell stories about people. You know, to almost back up slightly, the ethos of GoalClick is you know, a storytelling organization that prioritizes first person perspectives. This is not outsiders going in. This is not a photographer or a filmmaker or a journalist going into someone's life, into someone's community and telling their story. This is about giving the power, the control, the freedom to those people themselves to tell their story from their own perspective through their own eyes. So that definitely starts us off on the right foot. You know, this is about providing a platform, not about telling their story on their behalf. I think that most media, most documentary, most organizations, there's still a tendency to tell people's story for them. It's just natural because you have, <laughs> let's face it, it's easier as well. You know, what we're doing is really hard. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of patience, it takes a lot of credibility, it takes a lot of trust. And that takes, that isn't days or weeks, that's months, sometimes years of trust. So almost the very start, our approach kind of immunizes us slightly against any of those potentially damaging factors. Um, what I would say is that I think over the years, the work that we've done has given us credibility to show people that we're telling stories in the right way. And I think you just need to look at the work we do in refugee communities, in conflict zones, with women and girls around the world to see how how we we treat those stories and how much space we give them and i actually don't think you'd necessarily know who was behind it unless you knew who was behind it so to speak mm -hmm. um we work in a very calm slow patient way often with local um fixers or with local ngos or with local organizations who welcome us in you know we're not we're not turning up. <laughs> We're not trying to um, elbow our way in. We work at the pace that the participant or the organizations who we've got to know them through want to work at. And um, yeah, it's the one thing we we preach to all of our all of our partners as well. Um, you know, this is not a quick fix. This is deep, meaningful storytelling. And we sometimes call it not long form or short form, but slow form. I think that is a really important element of what we do. I was going to ask if your process changed at all when you work on something that's more high profile, uh, but I'm guessing based off your last answer, not really. Uh, and I'm thinking back to when I was with the spirit and um, there were times when we do stuff with like a Rose Lavelle and I would be like, Hey, everybody on their P's and Q's, there's going to be a lot of extra eyeballs on this. And I remember one time my boss, you know, one of the first times I did that was like, well, we need to treat everybody that I'm like, that's great in theory. Um, and absolutely we want to do our best work at all times, but the stakes are different when there's 50 people watching versus 5,000, um, or 50,000, which is something with Rose would often garner. And so, um, I'm I'm curious how you approach some of the more high profile projects, and imagine sometimes there, whether the profile is high or low, like there's different gatekeepers and all those kinds of things. So how do you navigate the different challenges of the different projects? Because I'd imagine each project is on some level unique. Yeah, look, each project comes with its own challenges and its and its own ways of managing people. 
Um, but the fundamentals of the storytelling never change. You know, we provide all of our storytellers with a disposable analog camera. We ask them to capture their lives as they see it. We provide guidance and we answer their questions and make them feel comfortable. But ultimately, it's it's up to them to capture what they what they want to show. Um, then we help them write their own stories alongside it. And then we're now starting to move into you know, other ways of storytelling. You know, audio and short film is a big kind of growth area for us over this year and next. Um, but ultimately, we treat um, you know, Sam Mewis or Lucy Bronze the same as we treat um, Blessy from Daravi in Mumbai. You know, it is ultimately you know, helping them create user-generated content in a coherent narrative way, which, as I said, takes time and takes patience and takes guidance. But yeah, we've we've always treated the storytellers in exactly the same way, and I think that shines through with the with the content. Um, it doesn't feel like we've put extra effort into a high profile player because actually we haven't. Um, now, sometimes we might have to hold the hands of the organisations that we work with a little bit uh, more if they're uh, um, if they're a bigger, more high profile organisation. But by and large, I think that ultimately, it often comes down to the human that you're dealing with and just because it's a more high profile organization you can find people who are intensely relaxed and sometimes you can work with a very small organization and they're not relaxed <laughs> so it, it fundamentally comes true. down to being able to have i guess communication skills empathy and you know being open to going at the pace that another person is willing to go at um we try not and stamp our feet so to speak uh we will always try and go at the speed that our our partners want to go at has the way that you see the world changed at all um over the course of these i guess it'd be seven years since 2013 because i'm sure you've learned a lot about the world you go into or you start to tell the story of a place that is not on the news every night or that you'd have to really try to find uh, to learn about. So I'm sure like if I asked you about Mumbai, you know more now, Sierra Leone, all these different places, Pakistan, uh, et cetera. But if you try to zoom out a little bit and think about the world connected through football, the world connected through whatever else, like are there bigger picture things that have shaped your worldview or clarified in certain places uh, that, that you really point to that you see the world differently because of the work you do through GoalClick? Impossible not to. It's impossible not to. And I'd love to hear myself speaking seven years ago to see how I've changed and if I've changed. Um, yeah, I, I think my own personal knowledge of situations and different cultures and societies around the world has obviously been um, been shaped by the work we do. Um, I find it really interesting to almost get a pulse on the world through what we do, particularly during COVID has been really interesting. You know, speaking with people in over 150 countries on almost a daily basis and seeing, you know, almost the, the temperature, so to speak, of each country and how it's dealing with COVID and the different regions and different countries that have been affected at different times. I really do feel that I do get that macro view on the world that I feel very fortunate to have that. I see how people see things differently i'm on you know groups with other nationalities who see the same event in a completely different way to you know the 
narrative in the UK. Um, I think the biggest thing, though, is that um, it seems to me very clear that there are a lot of people and people's stories that are overlooked, um, silenced, if you will. And I feel quite proud that we give that platform to those communities and people that aren't otherwise heard. Um, because everyone has a voice and everyone has a story, but they're not always given that space to tell it. Um, and I think particularly on a from a woman and girl's perspective and from a refugee's perspective, and if you combine those two things together from a female refugee's mm. perspective, I think those stories have definitely had an effect on myself because um, when else would I have really heard them? And the big thing that I always try and say is that a lot of these issues are very complex and a lot of these issues are very hard for people to get their minds around. And it's not that people don't care, but it's that they're not necessarily priorities in people's minds. And I think what football does and what I think it's done for me, but I think what it does for everyone who comes across Gold Click is almost by stealth, it gets people to care about issues that they might not otherwise have cared about. I think that is the power of sport and the power of storytelling. It's framing issues in a way they wouldn't otherwise necessarily come across them. So, you know, would someone care about an Afghan refugee in Austria? Maybe not. When they see about a football tournament and they can start reading about someone's story through the lens of football, then suddenly they're hooked in. So it's almost using football by stealth to get people to care about broader issues around gender equality, around refugee issues, around conflicts and around discrimination. And that's where I think Gold Click really comes into its own when it brings in people who wouldn't otherwise necessarily care about the underlying issue and it makes them much more interested and learn a little bit more about it. Stories are a lot easier to tell. Issues are a lot easier to talk about when there's a human face to them. And I think you guys do that beautifully. And it's the... That's a beautiful note to end on as well. So uh, this was this was fantastic. I greatly appreciate your time uh, and uh, continued success and it continued success in the expansion too. I'm excited to see what uh, what is next for Gold Click. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, yeah, look forward to speaking again sometime soon. For more from Gold Click, check out their website goal-click.com you can also follow them on instagram at goalclick and you can check out so many of the stories that were referenced in this podcast thanks for listening thanks again to matthew for his time make sure you check out their work it's truly fantastic and we'll see you next time here on chasing interesting